the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. This is Mark Steven Schwartz, and it is both an honor and a privilege for me to read the diaries of American and Allied civilian prisoners of war interned in and around Kobe, Japan during the Great Pacific War, World War II. This is episode number six, and we start with December 18th, 1941. I'll now quote from Max Brodowski's diary. After a week of confinement, we were marched up to Aganya Heights, overlooking the harbor. Instead of shooting us, as many believed they would, the Imperial Japanese Army proceeded to put on a demonstration for the misguided Americans. They had actually brought us up to witness their might. They marched, they fired field pieces, and the big feature was when they opened up with several machine guns on an American flag flying from a buoy in the harbor. They finally shot the Stars and Stripes to pieces and we were led down the hill again to our prison. Their intention was to humiliate us and show their contempt for everything that we believed sacred. U.S. Navy Governor George J. McMillan. On December 18th, I was taken to the golf course at Agania to witness army maneuvers including the firing of the various types of weapons. The group of spectators included practically all of the American prisoners and many native civilians. It was estimated there were approximately 3,000 Japanese troops, including a troop of cavalry of more than 300. Charles F. Gregg. Up at six o'clock by soldier's order, breakfast of half a medium boiled potato and one soft boiled egg, shaved with a blade that had only been used about 30 times before, so did a fine job of trimming my mustache. It looks like hell to me. We were all marched up the bluffs behind the town to the golf course known as Aganya Heights, overlooking the town and the cathedral about three quarters of a mile from the bay. They had an American flag out on a buoy and a World, One, World War I artillery piece, a 45 millimeter howitzer with wagon wheels. These guys fired their first salvo. It went completely over the buoy and around it. The second salvo went way underneath it and the third salvo was off to the right. None of them were close. They fired six salvos that I recall. What a display of the Nipponese might. They fired some small field pieces at the buoy with the American flag on it and then machine gunned the bay at the junction of the reef in deep water. Then they shelled a point of land on the far side of Agania, Sweeney, which means tell it to Sweeney is slang for don't you believe it. Sweeney would say their marksmanship was fair. Fired about 200 rounds of small bore field pieces between one pound and 55 millimeters. Then had the equivalent to a regimental review with trumpets and all. 
Guesses range from 1,000 to 2,000 soldiers in that review. They also had about 50 horses and 18 trucks. After the review, they told the officers and soldiers that they were establishing a new order in Asia and that they were going to smash the ABCD powers, America, Britain, China, and the Dutch, especially the U.S. and Great Britain. He told them to tell the truth and to conduct themselves as prisoners. Instructions from Colonel McNulty. Manuel Calvo came in early this afternoon with two big sacks of food and a gunny sack of something, but the guards would not let him in, nor would they bring the gifts to us. From now on, we get nothing from the outside. Damn, this concentration camp is fast losing all of its glamour. Highlight, a sign on the border of Agania similar to that at Honolulu, in 1939. In 1946, Charles F. Gregg wrote, it refers to an incident in Honolulu where a sign was posted at the gangway of a visiting Jap warship, requiring visitors to bow to the Japanese flag. This rule was enforced by Jap Marines with bayonets. Dinner was a bit though very small, of the same thing, stew and a small piece of potato, all of which brought forth much talk of good food and how to prepare tasty dishes. Colonel McNulty was the chief exponent of it and mentioned, among other good things, numerous French dishes, including bouillabaisse, fish stew, garlic toast, and some fine Modoc wine. New Caledonia was a nice time, and I am thankful that I had the chance to taste some real living, although this contrast is perhaps the reason for looking back at some real high living. Started to run at the nose this morning, and by the afternoon really had a head cold. Dr. Williams gave me a couple of vegetable cathartic tablets, and at 5.30 a.m. Friday had first results in four days. Well, sleep was okay at the oak benches and chairs tonight. Really getting used to it now. Harold Brinkerhoff. We were marched to the plaza and the Jap governor of Guam gave us a speech. He said the reasons for the war was the encircling movement of the ABC, American, British, Chinese, that the Japanese must break their power in Asia or be strangled economically. The blame for the war rested on the ABC powers. He said we were prisoners of war and to conduct ourselves as such. As long as we obeyed all orders, our lives would be safe and we would be accorded the privileges of war prisoners. None of us were impressed. They fired a few rounds with their heavier guns but they wasted little ammunition of heavy variety. Several 50 caliber machine guns were brought up and trained out to sea. There were two buoys which had an American flag draped on one of them. They opened up with their machine guns, firing many rounds. We hoped they would not get the range. 
after an eternity of suspense, they got the range and fired on the buoys. It took a long time for them to sink them. It was terrible to see Old Glory slowly sink beneath the waves, riddled by machine gun fire. We were so angry we could have killed us some Japs had we been able. I hope the Japs got some satisfaction. They're pretty cocky now, but their time will come. We return to the church ravenous as wolves from the excessive exercise. Dick Arvidson. In the morning, all prisoners were required to witness a Japanese military review, including the firing of Japanese weapons. At this time, a Japanese governor of the island of Guam was inaugurated. Roy C. Henning. We witnessed a military review. Bryant Sterling. We were marched to the top of the hill above Agania to watch the Japanese troops maneuver. We had to go before we could even eat breakfast. Everyone was very weak. Many fainted standing in the hot sun. Soldiers fired machine guns and light artillery conducted of cavalry maneuvers. I felt sick to my stomach, almost fainted, managed to heave just as the Japanese general goes by. I was afraid the guard would poke me with his bayonet. We finally head back to the church. I managed to make eye contact with Frank Borja on our way back. Later on, he brought coffee to the church for Art Okapinti and me two quart whiskey bottles full. The Japanese never gave us a satisfying meal at the church. Anything that anywhere near halfway filled us came from the outside, and not, mu not much of that because many days no food was allowed to come in at all. Frank Borja sent in one good meal for four of us. Corn on the cob, sweet potatoes, wild boar's meat, and coffee, all we could eat. Brought in by Don Wallace's houseboy, sweet hotcakes, tortillas, and coffee. Don't forget to try these sweet cakes at home. Brought in by Tony Leonguero, milkshake, sandwiches, grape nuts, sugar, coffee, can of cream. Brought in by Bill Falvey's housegirl, Baked taro, chicken, and steak, bread, peanut butter by ski, dry coffee on top, even some peanut butter. Carmen sent in coffee and chicken. Also, won't ever forget the many meatless stews we concocted and arts tortillas. We always ate with the... We always ate with tin cans and had to find our own tools to eat with. Many made spoons out of bamboo. Towards the end, they gave us plates. I managed to get two beer mugs, gave one to Art Okapinti. Governor George J. McMillan. At 1300, I was taken to the government house for questioning by a considerable group of army officers. General Horry was present during most of the interview. When I returned to my quarters in the hospital, my effects had been moved to the second floor, and I was forbidden to speak to anyone without Japanese authority. 
This order was revoked in about three days. I was returned to the government house for further questioning that evening. I was not mistreated during these interviews on this particular day. They said that Tokyo had informed them that many guns had recently been landed on Guam and they wanted to know where they were. I replied to the effect that locating these guns was perhaps part of their duty as invading troops, that I had no information on the subject to give them. Among other questions, they asked if I had received instructions from Washington to confine Japanese nationals in the jail and to extinguish the navigation lights of the island. I replied in the negative. They said the local Japanese had complained about the food they were given in jail. They were generally in very good humor, explaining what they intended to accomplish with the co-prosperities plan for Greater East Asia and asked for my opinion. I had none. They asked if I did not know that Japan was very strong. I replied that I knew Japan had many soldiers, that she had been at war for a number of years and had trained a great army, but that we in Guam considered it a compliment when they sent six or 7,000 troops to take Guam from the small force we had. They became somewhat excited at this reply. I was to get the after effects a few days later. December 19th, 1941. George J. McMillan. On December 19th, I was called before a group of Japanese naval officers for further questioning. They were interested primarily in the harbor arrangements and the work that was underway in the harbor. They had a chart of the harbor marked restricted, which seemed to please them very much, though it was a chart so outdated that it was practically useless. They pointed to the open spar at the entrance to the harbor and asked what it was. I replied to the effect that any naval officer should know that. It marked the entrance to the harbor. Later, I was told that one of their transports was aground on the reef and our divers were compelled by threats to work on this ship. They asked about the composition and disposition of the U.S. fleet at Hawaii and in the Philippines, but I had no information on that subject. They told me that these fleets had been destroyed. Charles F. Gregg. Good breakfast this morning, paper cup of coffee, small potato and small portion of scrambled egg with a few small pieces of a, of a sausage cut up in it. Slept most of the day but played Rook with Al and read an article on hurricanes. Am also reading Children of God, the Story of Mormonism. Colonel with Joe Martin and Campbell. No food allowed in today, although yesterday the guards changed after Manuel Calvo left and quite a bit of food was allowed in. Guards are becoming more strict. Dinner of small potato and a bit of stew this evening. Dean and McNinnis taught me the beginnings of cribbage and had the luck of a beginner beating Mac in two games, a hand a rook with Al and a bed on the board benches.
Harold Brinkerhoff. We have a daily schedule as follows. Reveille, 6 a.m. Wash, 6 to 7. Clean quarters, 7 to 8. Breakfast, 9 to 10. Sick call, 10 to noon. Exercise in the plaza, 1 to 2. Dinner, 3 to 4. Clean quarters, 6 to 7. Wash, 7 to 8. Roll call, 8. Taps, 9. We rigged a pretty fair shower. It seemed good to bathe after many days without. We can also wash our filthy clothes. The fence between the church and the hospital looks like a Chinese laundry. There are a lot of men still out. We think as soon as everyone is accounted for, things will be easier for us. The Japs have issued orders that natives feeding or harboring Americans will be harshly punished. December 20th, 1941. Governor George J. McMillan. About 1600, I was again taken to the government house before a group of about 20 Navy and Army officers. I was required to stand on a brick stairway on footprints previously marked in chalk. Two Japanese blue jackets with fixed bayonets and a chief petty officer with drawn cutlasses stood behind me. A very irate and noisy naval commander, I think he was the chief of the staff to the rear admiral, drew a Jap sword from its scabbard. The sword lay on a table in front of me. He raised the sword over my head, talking in a very excited manner. The interpreter told me, in effect, my attitude before the investigating committee had been unsatisfactory, that I would be given until the next day to change my attitude. In case of failure, I would no longer be considered a prisoner of war. Nothing more happened. I was told a few days later by the principal interpreter that the Japanese officers were very angry at me because I thought they thought I was making fun of them. Charles F. Gregg, another meager breakfast. We are getting insufficient food to keep us going, but all of us are weak. Organized policing detail and pooled shaving articles, etc. Our supply will last hardly a month. We are eating out of tin cans, spoons of wood, plates of paper caps, a glass cabinet door, etc. Washing facilities for dishes bad since no hot water or disinfectant. Latrine facilities worse with one shower bath, homemade, and two toilets for approximately 500 men. You have to get up at 2 to 4 a.m. to have an uninterrupted movement, and then you're not sure, but there will be probably a line waiting. With so little food, however, movements are every four or five days, so that helps. We are drinking lots of water and praying that amoebic dysentery does not strike. All hands and officers group are getting on good, but there is discontent brewing below. Those who don't read or play cards are rather forlorn. Feel sorry for them as time drags. Dean M. fixed a bed for me from crumpled waste paper 
tied in a fishnet. So Al Hamileff and I worked on one for Al. Some of the guards are very pleasant and courteous, even joking occasionally. They published a daily routine, Reveille at 6 a.m. Tokyo time, 7 a.m. Guam time, etc. 8.30 a.m. is news. Guards chuckled and said, yes, Tokyo news. We are supposed to have privilege of walking around the building and even play tennis tomorrow between 1.30 to 2.30 and 5 to 6 p.m. Dinner, one very small potato, a piece of beef, the circumference of a half dollar, and a teaspoon of gravy. Pretty poor pickings now. Played more rook, both three and four-handed this evening. Jim Epley gave me a bed sheet, so now I'm a wealthy plutocrat with that and a toothbrush. All hands are exceptionally cooperative and generous. Formed a club today, the Shorn Lambs Club of Agania, Guam, Midway Island. Thomas, Wells, and Vaughn are with Marines on bottom floor of our building, while four radio operators are in the cathedral next door. We have been eating next door with them until this evening, when all civilians ate with the officers' mess for the first time. The food is all the same, and if there's any difference, it's merely that the officers get less. Well to bed now on the luxurious bed of a small fishnet filled with paper. Harold Brinkerhoff. Lowe's house girl brought us some oranges. I had a half of one. Did it taste good? Many people are bringing food and cigarettes for fellows. I've watched for some of my men, but have only seen Ben Solace. He brought me my toothbrush and some soap. I guess Chong has left town as I've not seen her since she brought my razor. Our breakfast was a hard-boiled egg and a potato. Dinner was a cup of stew. Many of the fellows are getting very hungry. December 21st, 1941, Harold Brinkerhoff. Many fellows who have no outside connections are envious of those who do. Johnston, Underwood, Brunton, Walker, Notley, and several others who have wives outside get food in daily. Of all the fellows, Johnston is the most generous. He has given me sandwiches on several occasions. Lowe shares with me nearly everything he gets in. I had only a dollar thirty. I gave it to Lowe's house girl to see if she could get us some candy. Ben Salas brought me in a malted milk. It wasn't cold, but surely tasted good. There's a piano in the recreation hall. There are a couple of fellows who play very well. Mr. Far Farwell was playing I'll See You Again. It made me want to cry. I thought of my family and wondered if I would ever see them again. No hopes of a speedy meeting. Maybe never. Anything can happen in a war. Charles F. Gregg. The bed was not as good last night, so threw it off at 2 a.m. and returned to the bare benches. Was getting used to them when, lo, Christmas arrived early and all officers and we 10 civilians were given 10 canvas cots. The room was arranged according to officer's rank and civilians put in one place. 
plates and glasses were also given out, and I inherited a sheet from Dean Morgan in the lap of luxury now. Breakfast of scrambled eggs with a little meat and a glass of coffee, slightly large, larger portion than usual. More stew and potato for dinner. Did some washing today and have a small bench fitted out with all my worldly possessions. Including those on my back, I now have tennis shoes, two pair of socks, two pair of pants, two shirts, one pair of undershorts, four handkerchiefs, one sheet, watch, a pen, pocketbook, passport, pocket comb, and toothbrush. I share a razor and a blade with Al, also one bar, bar of palm olive. With a total list of things such as that, you really don't have to worry. Things are much simpler. A Japanese interpreter gave us some Japanese and German news today. Natives were allowed to hold mass for the first time since the surrender. December 22nd, 1941, Charles F. Gregg. Food still scarce both morning and evening, but the cot really is appreciated after two weeks sleep on the ground, pool table, cement and wood floors and benches. It's an experience to remember, but not to repeat. We had a glass of cocoa this morning and spaghetti this evening, both first in our prison life. It broke the monotony of boiled potato and stew. However, the quantity and roughage food is the crime need. Guards took list of all marine clothing today, but did not list what the civilians had in the clothing line. During inspection, some notebooks were taken, but I was fortunate and able to retain this one. Spent a good hour pumping the lieutenant in charge, Lieutenant Kawashima, for Japanese-English words. He appears to be a fine chap, 35 years old, a former banker who has spent some time in Hanoi and China fighting, three months without washing, shaving, or changing clothes. He showed us a picture of his five-year-old daughter. Then all the young fathers got together and compared pictures. Big event of the day. Number one, Carlson passed around a box of good candy. One piece of piece, a real treat and feast. Number two, allowed to walk for one hour up and down in one half of the plaza. Trying to learn to play billiards with Mr. Eldridge and Major Spicer, but it's pretty tricky. Lots of rain today. Catholic priests came up today and reported our wounded were doing nicely. Charles F. Gregg. We were told not to keep any records to begin with under penalty of death. They caught me making notes one time and took them away from me. So with notes I kept first in the jail at Guam in an old notebook and in a small copy of New Testament. I put notes in a pair of jock shorts we were stripped down at times and searched, but they never got to feeling the testicles. We went through a shakedown on the island of Shikoku. When they aligned us up there, I was pulled into a room, and they actually frisked us to see what they had. Keeping notes wasn't easy, particularly during the first six months. After we got to the Siemens mission, it became relatively easy. We didn't know at the time. 
I kept mine pretty well hidden. But they weren't around during a normal bed check when they could find them. One time I kept them in the bottom of my shoes during one of the examinations. As time went on, we could keep fuller notes. Harold Brinkerhoff. I kept the notes in my shoes and later when restrictions were relaxed, began keeping them in a loose leaf notebook. Grant Wells. A diary could be kept. We weren't that closely guarded or watched, but of course they couldn't be flaunted about. It was a hidden activity. I kept notes at first about a year, then gave up and destroyed them. Figured what I couldn't remember wasn't worthwhile. I probably It probably wasn't the wisest decision, but that's the way I felt at the time. Harold Brinkerhoff. The food situation is very bad. Everyone is extremely hungry. I have never been so hungry in my life. All one seems to think of is food. I feel angry at the men who worked for me. Only Ben Salas has brought me anything to eat. I guess that is unfair. They are probably on their farms and maybe short of food themselves. When you see food brought in to some of the local men, you feel like running up and grabbing it and gobbling it down before anyone can stop you. Lowe's house girl just brought in half of a fried chicken, some boiled spuds, a salad of string beans, onions, and peppers. My outlook on life has changed in minutes. Lowe's shared with me, it's funny how one's stomach governs his thoughts and goodwill towards others. Food has never been so important in my life before. There is talk of the fellows who have families getting out for Christmas. The guards let the wives and friends of the locals talk to them for some time today. There is some news brought by them. One bit was that a Jap transport troop ship was sunk 50 miles off of Guam. Everyone is surprised our forces have not struck back before now. I think we are expecting too much. Evidently, we were dealt a severe at Honolulu by the surprise attack. December 23, 1941, Charles F. Gregg. Continued small rations bordering on starvation portions brought forth from a few the challenge that the food was not being distributed equitably. As a result, Colonel McNulty observed all food distribution at dinner and found it just. Regardless of this, there was still quibbling. Hunger pains were momentarily broken on several occasions when Mrs. Mesa and Captain Starr set up coffee and bread for the entire officer group. The officers, strangely enough, are actually getting less than most others since the enlisted men who are shacked up are receiving daily sacks and pots of food from their girls. This is resulting in a surprisingly large influx of food. The contractors were able to buy some canned goods and consequently have been faring well. There are all reasons for dissension. Those that have are trying to keep it for themselves, and those that haven't would like to get some of their food. The same old problem and cause of this very war. The day was full of rumors that we were we would be given a half loaf of bread each day, that a Japanese transport was sunk seven miles off Guam, that the American flag would again be flying over Guam by New Year's. A pleasant thought, but from this 
angle hardly credible. A work party of 70 men were taken out to PT to help unload barges of rice and canned goods for the Japanese. Harold Brinkerhoff. Today, a native boy tried to smuggle in a note to Maxim and some cooked rice. The guards, by accident, discovered it. The note said there would be notes in the future written in invisible ink. The Japs are worked up over it. They have stopped food from coming in. The fellows are very angry at Maxim. I guess we'll all be penalized for his foolishness. He probably asked the boy to smuggle news to him. The Japs have promised us more food. When our dinner came in, it was smaller than usual. There was a lot of grumbling. A sack of salt and some pepper was brought in. It makes our potato taste better. December 24th, 1941, Charles F. Gregg. Up at seven o'clock and a half glass of coffee, very small potato and slice of fried lunch meat for breakfast. Wash clothing and shower out of doors. More extra coffee, half, half a glass, and a slice of bread from natives outside for all officers. Dean and Marks divided a box of Christmas hard candy, sang Christmas carols in the cathedral while a priest played the organ and Methodist chaplain directed. A strange setting and unusual situation resulting in mixed emotions of pathos and humor. Men coming in from taking showers with only a towel around them and going to their bed, situated before the altar, and dressing while others singing, etc. Chamorro Band gave a Christmas concert from the bandstand in the plaza. Audience of several hundred Chamorros, companies of Japanese soldiers, etc. The balcony on our floor overlooks the plaza, so we had balcony seats. Marines taken to the hospital with abdominal pain, the first real sickness among the prisoners. Lots of skin disease, which is to be expected in Guam, especially considering the lack of proper sanitation and washing facilities. Harold Brinkerhoff. Christmas tomorrow. It's the first Christmas I ever spent away from home. I'm glad I got my Christmas presents away in time. I know El Zeta's bracelet got through as it went by clipper. I hope the ship carrying the rest isn't captured. For breakfast, we have the usual, as some of the boys say, stud and spud, bologna and spud, and a cigarette can for, of coffee. We have cans of all descriptions for drinking cups. We had two slices of bread and a pat of butter and stew for dinner, a very good meal the best since our capture. After dinner, we sang Christmas carols for an hour. It made some feel better, but it made me feel very sad. And this concludes episode six of the We Raise the Stars and Stripes Over Japan podcast. Thanks very much for listening.